You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hi, everybody. We're in week three installments last week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for filling the Apostle Paul with your spirits to read your holy scriptures and um, to meet with Jesus and to exposit those scriptures at that very intersection of your Old Testament and encounter with the living Christ. And God, we ask that maybe even in a kind of normal room like this, we might encounter Jesus today by the power of your spirit simply because of opening your word, which is living and active. And so we lay ourselves before your word. We open our palms and lift ourselves to you and ask that you would use your word to open us up and to close us back up in in Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So we've been talking about Paul as the Old Testament theologian, and we've been doing it in three weeks and really hitting high points. In the first two weeks, we focused on Paul's reading of Genesis, and we looked particularly at the way Paul read uh, that book. And maybe we were surprised to learn that the things that plague us about Genesis in the 21st century weren't what Paul was interested in talking about. He wasn't interested in old earth versus young earth or how many days creation was or anything like that. He was way more interested in the person of Adam and the person of Abraham. We spent our two weeks focusing on Adam because the way Paul talks about Adam gives us a paradigm and a way of thinking about salvation and the things that are just dead center of humanity, whether we know it or not and whether we're listening or not. We observed with a circle here and a circle here of overlapping spheres that the way Paul understands cosmic reality is that you've got what he calls the old age that's filled with the old Adam. Come on in, guys. Be not shy. Um, We had a circle there where... uh, Paul said this is the old age, the old Adam that is headed toward death, that is going away, that is passing away. And then he says that uh, a new Adam, a second Adam has come and ushered in. And you and I live in, if we're thinking of those two circles, which I'll draw again in a bit, you and I live in the intersection of those two circles inside that football shaped reality where we we can neither sort of... um, perfect our way or work our way to bust through that that top end of the circle into perfection this side of our our first death and final death nor can we in Christ sin our way out of the back end of that praise God so we live in this tense time of the overlapping of ages and we said that one of Paul's reads about the old Adam and the old Eve in us is found compactly in Romans 7 where Paul says I'm just really struggling here. I'm a wretched man. I do what I don't want to do. And what I don't do, I do do. And he keeps on saying these kinds of contradictory things. And what we found for ourselves as Paul reads Adam and kind of gives a cosmic picture of that for both our lives and for the world, because <laughs> he talks about the whole creation is groaning until it awaits new creation as well. One of the things we learn is that it actually makes sense and helps define why the Christian life is so agonizing and tough. And it gives language to why Luther would say something like, when you uh, become a Christian, you're actually thrust at that moment into a lifetime of spiritual struggle, 
with the Lord. Why? Because the living and active word of God at that moment, by the power of the spirit, is committed to putting all that's old about you that's dying to death. So God's agenda with you is to kill you, old Adam and Eve, and to resurrect in you the new Adam. And so that's why we live in this tension. We hear preaching about what we should do and we feel the contradiction of what we are. And that's because we live in the overlapping of the spheres. (laughs) We live in that place. And now we're going to turn to what's going to help us define that reality even more. And it's Paul's exegesis of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, those books of the Bible. And it's not as though he writes a commentary on them, but you get the picture once we look at the passages that we'll look at that Paul has read these and has come up with a, uh, a conclusion about the way the word of God works. So that's what we're going to look at today is how he reads Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And to break this open, open your Bibles to Galatians 3. This will be a, a, a great entree into this because he's actually quoting Leviticus here. And he's using it in contrast to a quoting of another Old Testament passage, not in the Pentateuch or the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, but he's quoting a prophet. So he's holding up Leviticus and Habakkuk. And he's making an observation about the way life and salvation work under these two paradigms. One is with Leviticus and one is with Habakkuk. So listen to Galatians 3, 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is interesting because Paul, here and in Romans, will quote Habakkuk 2.4 again and again. He's read something there that has shown him something about the way God's salvation works. And that's for him become a touchstone in the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. It becomes the way he reads Abraham. It becomes the way he reads all of salvation history is through this. But he's contrasting here. He's using a righteousness that is from faith, sharply distinguished from a righteousness that is, he's already said, from the law. And to make that distinction clear, he goes on in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Oh, and I forgot to quote the Leviticus passage. That's verse 12. But the law, sharp distinction, is not of faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the laws, these laws that Leviticus is talking about, shall live by them. So he's quoting Leviticus and he's got to read. He said there's a righteousness by faith and there's a righteousness by the law. And the righteousness by faith is not a righteousness of the law. And he says because the law says the one who does them will live. But he also reads Habakkuk that says, what again? It says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's kind of set this up a little bit. And hear what he's, what he's putting together. He's talking about a righteousness by the law. 
Sorry for my bad handwriting. And a righteousness by faith. He's not saying they meet. He's not saying there's any, there's sort of any, um, there's just two kinds and one is not the other, right? He's being very clear about that. Righteousness by law, he quotes Leviticus 18.5. And righteousness by faith, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. And substantiating his claim about Leviticus 18.5, in the beginning of the passage, he says, what's the result of seeking righteousness by law? Curse. And what he might say elsewhere? Death. And what's the result of seeking righteousness by faith? Life, right? So you have this sharp contrast here. We could say then that in a way he's talking about these overlapping spheres again. So let's redraw them. And if we put a line right down the middle, that's kind of what he'd say. On the one hand, this old world, sorry about that ugly circle. Some of you are freaking out right now. Um, this old, yeah, well, even, even more, sorry. Um, yeah, it's a light pen. Sorry about that. So we've got this righteousness by the law. And the reason I'm putting it in the sphere of the old world is something that we'll see in the next passage that we look at. Because he says that the law is part of something. It's part of this old, old, uh, old world. We've seen in Paul a reading of Leviticus 18.5 as live by the law and you are cursed and you will die. Now let's look at another verse where Paul neatly makes a similar contrast. Turn with me to Romans 7.6. And oh, for more time, but I'm kind of giving us the blitz. Romans 7, 6. Listen to his language here. But now he's speaking of people who are uh, saved. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's talking about these overlapping spheres. We're in Romans 7 again, right? So we're in this place where he's talking about that existential angst of being a Christian and learning what this is. We're released from this guy, law, and he uses this word, spirit. We're released from this realm, set free for this realm, law and spirit. And furthermore, he says, not just that we're released from it, but we died to it. So there's a death here of this old world that the law is a part of, you know, that we need. So now here we come to what might be the most pointed teaching of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. And this is where I'll kind of outline those three books, reading it through the way Paul reads it. So now turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 3, 4 through 9. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 9. Pay attention to the language we've established here. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 9. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. 
So you're already hearing this distinguishing language that Paul's talking about. He hasn't used righteousness by law and righteousness by faith. But because that's his paradigm everywhere, we know that that's what he's talking about. Such is our sufficiency. It comes from God. He's also talking here in particular about his credentials as an apostle. Right? I got my credentials not by human hands, but from God. But he's also hinting at his theological paradigm of the way he reads the Old Testament and salvation in Jesus Christ. So not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Here's the contrast. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. And listen to this. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, we've already heard Paul contrast law and spirit in Romans in another place. So it might already be a hint to us that he's kind of talking about the same thing. And you read on and you start to get the, the idea that he's definitely talking about the same thing. So I'm just going to write letter here because that's the paradigm he uses in 2 Corinthians 3. He's contrasting letter and spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. So now he's sort of doing a word play on the word letter and talking about these Old Testament tablets that Moses got. So he's starting to drive into Exodus here. When Moses goes up on the mountain and gets letters carved in stone, the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the whole law. So he's talking about the law here. Now the, And he's calling it the ministry of death. Oh, that's so great. Thanks, God. Carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Okay, so he's talking about the ending of this thing again, kind of like bringing us to what we heard in Romans 7, 6. Will not, verse 8, the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's not saying the ministry of the law is not glorious. It's intensely glorious. But it's just that the ministry of the Spirit is all the more glorious. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... So we could add here curse, death, condemnation are part of this whole paradigm. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And now we're getting this. This is why Paul's hard to read sometimes because he'll use this language of righteousness over here and over here. But he's using righteousness by faith righteousness as his word for this side of the equation. Right? That's what he's saying because he's contrasting. For there is glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, oh, we'll stop there. So what is he talking about? As he's starting to talk about Moses and the law and these Old Testament commandments, what is he exposing to us about the way he reads Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? He has a very specific understanding of the nature of the law of God. And he understands the nature of the law of God based on what it does. It has an effect. And what's its effect? Condemnation, cursing, death. Okay? So, if we were to take a stab at trying with that lens to go back and see, how is Paul reading Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? Let's look at this outline. And we'll start from Exodus 19. But if we sort of blew up or, or blew, blew out from the minutiae of Exodus and looked at its broad outline, along with the, the broad outline of Leviticus and Numbers, there's these 
moments of the giving of the law and the articulation of the law punctuated and filled with narrative about the people of God. It's sort of like you've got a giving of the law and God saying, this is what I want you to do. Do this, do that with the tabernacle. Do this, do that with sacrifices. Do this, do that with priestly garments. Do this, do that with your life. Do this, do that with the temple, etc., etc., etc. And in the midst of those giving of the law, he's got these little points of narrative where uh, Israelite is, Israel is doing stuff. And then the law is given. Then Israelite, Israel does more stuff. Now, if you were to read those moments where Israel's doing stuff in relationship to this law, you might get a pretty clear picture of what Paul's reading here. In Exodus 19 through 24, this is funny the way God works, but actually this was highlighted to me because next week our lectionary passage is out of Exodus 24 because it's, it's, uh, it's Moses' pre-transfiguration. It's when he's on the mountain over Sinai. And in our lectionary next week, it'll contrast, it's, it's Transfiguration Sunday. So it'll contrast it with, um, with Jesus on the mount, right? If you read around that passage and get past just the Transfiguration event, Something Israel does something very interesting. At, at chapter 19, well before this, this mountain experience, Israel commits before God gives the law. Everything They say this language, everything that you have said, we will do. We will do it, right? At the beginning of 19, it punctuates it again right before Moses goes back up the mountain. So it's like Moses is saying, okay, I've got the law and I'm going back up to kind of ratify it and get the tablets or something like that. And they say, again, we commit. So it, it's punctuating Israel's commitment to do the law. We will do it. So Moses goes up, gets it. Chapters 24 through 31 are the explication of more giving of law. So it's things like the tabernacle and the priestly garments. The next moment we see the people in action. So again, people in action, we will do the law. What happens in Exodus 32? What's that episode? What am I hearing? Golden calf. There's no gap of sort of narrative time between we will do it and we broke it. Right? Immediately, Paul reads that. He's reading that going, what's going on there? And so what do they do after this point? Try again. Moses goes back up, gets some new... Let's try again this law thing. Let's open it up. And this time... Exodus ends and you get all of Leviticus, which is apart from a huge, uh, some bits of narrative, all law, right? It's giving of more law. It's almost like try again this time. I'm going to make it crystal clear. Parents, are you starting to feel me on what happens when you try again with your kids and you make it crystal clear by now I'm going to really define the boundaries, really make the rules clear by adding additional rules so that you understand what's going on, right? Do we all know where this is headed? Okay. So all of Leviticus is kind of expanding this law. Again, thinking about how Paul's reading this based on what we said. Then we hit the book of Numbers. All right. This is the crazy part. Book of Numbers. I mean, you read it, you, you're immediately discouraged upon, you know, you're, this is normally where people drop off their Bible reading plans is when they read Numbers 1, right? Because it's names. And it's like, why did you do this, Lord? Why did you give me these names? How am I supposed to get any devotional feel goods from these names? Um, so you read a genealogy of, of names of people who are headed and are in the wilderness of wandering under the law of God. So you're thinking about the, the movement of the narrative. Israel's been given the law and this is where they're living with it. Israel broke it once, try again, living with it. Wilderness wandering. So they've been given the law and they list a list of names at the beginning. And then a bunch of narrative. 
Numbers isn't a good book. A lot of stuff goes wrong in Numbers. Israel wanders. Some little victories here and there, but by and large, it's a narrative of people under the law. And how do we know? Because by the end, it starts to list names at the end of their time in the wilderness wandering before they hit Deuteronomy and Joshua and go into the promised land. And what do you notice at the end of the narrative if you were to compare the names at the beginning and the names at the end? It's a completely different list. What might Moses, uh, what might Paul be reading is the effect of life under the law. All these people lived under that law. What happened to them? They all died. And so Moses, or I keep saying Moses, Paul reads these books with that paradigm that we just talked about. Obviously, the, the law is a ministry of death. Obviously, it exists to kill. <laughs> Obviously, it exists to annihilate, right? So even then, we're observing Paul looking at this paradigm. Very, he's looking at narrative very theologically. And he's understanding the way the word of God works as it's given. And there's this particular voice of the word of God called the law. And this voice does this job. It kills. All right, so that's... If we were to look at it, that's how we kind of see Paul outlining this. Before I go into some maybe practical outworkings of that, what are you hearing or what questions do you have as you read this or what thoughts come to mind? Yes, ma'am. I just hear Moses saying, choose life. Mm. Choose the law. I mean, right. It was, wasn't it? It was presented as something they could do, and yet it never really happened. And yet they went through all these ceremonies, including many blessings and curses kind of liturgies, where they even, they even liturgically enacted it, where they put up two people, one on Mount Ebal and one on Mount Gerizim, and they shouted blessings and curses at one another to sort of liturgically enact, we're going to keep this covenant, and we all agree that if we don't, curses, but if we do, blessings. Right? And so you read that in uh, Deuteronomy and you read it here as well. Uh, and so they're optimistic. And even in their optimism, the narrative keeps pointing out that it's not happening. And Paul goes, this is, this is really interesting. I'm starting to get a read on this. Yes. I think so. Uh, well, I think Paul would read that that way. Yes, the sacrifices are Paul's acknowledgement of we can't do it, right? But then there seems to be groups of people like the Pharisees who thought, oh, we are doing it perfectly. Well, so it's the sacrifices for people? So now you're talking about people who are coming long, a- long after this no, point in Israel's yeah. history. But I want to make a point about that because it's a good one. What Paul's already observing here is two broad cycles of the people trying and the people failing. Throughout the rest of Old Testament history leading up to Jesus and still in the Christian church, we keep trying those same cycles. And you have sympathy, right? Because if you're a Pharisee in the first century and you've read the, all the narrative of the Old Testament and you're aware of your own um, tradition and what people have passed down is the stories of your people, why are you in dire straits? Why is the Roman... Uh, why is the Roman Empire totally oppressing you? Why all this stuff? Because we've rebelled against the Lord. That's the clear message of the law and the prophets. And so they're like, well, this time, 
a little bit of amnesia here for the other this times Israel has done this. But this time, we're going to try really hard. And you can respect that. You know, you can respect the idea that Pharisees would want to say, we got to do it. You know, blessings come this way. And Paul's basically reading that again, speaking to audiences that have that paradigm in place and saying, don't you recognize that that whole program is bankrupt? You, You don't need new apps on the same OS. You need a new OS. The entirely different operating system. The operating system of righteousness by law didn't work then, hasn't worked in our history, and Pharisees ain't working now, right? It's just the same cycles of the same thing. You're trying really hard and it's not working. There must be something, but now, as Paul says in Romans 3, a total shocking statement, but now a righteousness apart from the law, apart from the law, is given by faith. So, yes, I think that there is something to the Pharisees and what Paul's doing here. Paul's exegeting the Old Testament almost to outdo, as a former Pharisee himself, to outdo their own biblical interpretation. To say, as I read this correctly and as Jesus has taught me, this whole paradigm is bankrupt. We need something different, right? And that's what he says in Galatians is getting confused when those Judaizers try to add a bunch of things to faith. Oh, you're a Christian now. You need to start, uh, you need to circumcise yourself. You need to sort of set yourself apart. And Paul says that's confusing the matter because it's almost acting like we need to go back to that old paradigm. And that's confusing people. And it's actually robbing them of the clarity of salvation by grace through faith, right? So that's the tension he feels. What else? That's a very good question. Yeah. I think we all should. But it's, I mean, since Genesis, we want to not believe the law and we want to think that we can save ourselves and we can do it. And so I love that God, I mean, of course, this is making it so simplified, but I love that God knows that our hearts are going to try and make ourselves our own God and that we're going to try and earn our way into heaven all the time, no matter what, even when he's like, here is grace. And we're like, now get circumcised too, don't you worry. Right, exactly. Well, that's that's part of the reality of the Roman sevenness of Christian existence, is that you and I, our problem is a, is a, is a problem ultimately of unbelief. <laughs> that what God said over here is really true. It's too good to be true. I've got to contribute something. Who's, according to what we talked about last week, who's saying those words? The old Adam, the old Eve, who by flesh wants to live by the law and wants to stand on their own two feet and say, look at me, God. Can I partner with you? Like 99% you, but can I just get 1% share in there? And Adam's always looking for an angle, a foot in the door. And so once you have this theological paradigm, it explains an awful lot about life about politics, about parenting, about grandparenting, about the way we behave in our workplaces. It explains an awful lot, right? And then I hear rising in your heart this kind of spirit-born worship that says, thank God for Jesus. You know, as we're hearing this, we're feeling the, uh, I feel the, the reality of how much this is not going to work. And maybe you're thinking back on your own biographies. Yes? Yeah, to your point of, lays a foundation for us to, a prism through which to understand where we find ourselves. 
uh, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, man, you look at this, and yeah. man is still being man. That's right. God is still being God. Frank Limehouse used to talk about, from time to time he would say, that you know, being a pastor for so many years, and people come in and tell him things, and he says, because he had an understanding of this, he said, I'm always shocked, but I'm never surprised. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, if, if you and I are still at the place where we're observing sin out there, of either people we know or on our social media feeds. If we're truly understanding the nature of the situation that Paul is describing here, there's there might be a shock. Oh my gosh! But there's never a surprise. There's a just a radical sobriety about the human condition that even the most righteous-looking people are just admired in. The, even the best of Christians, you know, it's. It's just that way. It's just that way. Yeah. But wasn't the law, wasn't there grace in the law in the sense that God provided sacrifices for them? Yes. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a, and people will point out to one of the things that is uh, narratively the case, to your point, is when God redeems Israel from Egypt, it's after that redemption that God gives them the law as a gracious means of helping them understand and keep it. And there was even grace in what what laws were given. I'm going to not only tell you what to do, but I'm going to tell you what to do for the moments where you mess this thing up. So I think that is very gracious. Nevertheless, Paul seems to still read it as all headed in one direction. Even in those gracious givings, even though those sacrifices kind of hint at it, as, as you know, Hebrews talks about, we're always waiting for that big aha, that big fullness where it's driving. Um, so I don't, I don't know what to do with that observation. Other than yes, I think so. Such that being under the law is still a, it's still a gift and God is being gracious within giving the law because he's providing a means through which they can understand their forgiveness in the midst of not keeping it. Yeah. Yes. The Old Testament sacrificial system and all that is like gospel within the law. Because all of it points to the ministry of Christ and what he's going to do. Yeah. And, and that, I think that's why it says in Exodus 25, I think, see that you do it exactly how I show you on the mountain. Yeah. Because this is what's pointing toward Christ. Right. And if you distort it, it's just like in Galatians, where if anybody's preaching another gospel, you know, it's if you just distort it, you're changing the gospel. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that ties with what uh, Doctor Padilla was saying when uh, he was. There's something to it's the law is doing this, and we don't quite. It's a little bit opaque what it's pointing to, but it's definitely pointing, right? I want to get there, so I want to spend our last ten minutes. Getting practical, but then going back to the scriptures. What does this mean for you and me? Number one, God's law is necessary in your life. But it's necessary for a very specific thing. And maybe I'll even say primarily, overwhelmingly necessary for a specific thing. This gets at what we talked about last week with that first circle. That the law exists to do what Moses, or what Paul exegeted it to do from Exodus through Numbers. It exists to... Some of you were laughing. Abby was telling me it was grotesque. It, was, it exists to pin your flesh to the wall, 
to not give it any wiggle room and then to start shouting at it the curses of the law. It exists to take that wily flesh is kind of always like, eh, I'm going to walk out here again. Nope, I'm going to do that again. It exists to constantly be pinned down and put to death because we're in sort of this realm of the overlapping spheres where that flesh is, is called dead by Paul, but it's also dying. Paul says these almost contradictory things like, you were dead in Christ, Colossians 3. You were dead in Christ, so put to death those things. And he starts to list things that are fruit of the flesh before he lists what's fruit of the spirit, right? The other side of this. And so you and I, number one, need God's law to constantly identify what the flesh is always trying to close its ears to, right? So we do need to hear every week, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind because we're, the flesh is always going to go, I've done a pretty good job, God. I've done a pretty good job. And you hear that flesh coming out on deathbeds of non-Christians. You hear that, and it's, it's a sad, dark thing because what they're basically saying is when I weigh my good and my bad, I was a decent person. And God's law says, that's damnable. Very clear. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what, you know, and it's trying to get that flesh to just lay down and call it quits. Stop it, right? And the law exists to do that. So we need, it's good to do that. It says that's the right way to do it. And in telling us to, it actually exposes the state of affairs that we're not. You know, that's what it's, that's what it's there to do. Number two, God's law can tell you what is right, but it can't make you do it. The law makes demands, but it cannot deliver on those demands. Paul's very clear of the distinction here. There's a righteousness that comes by the law that only leads to death. And there's a righteousness from faith. Ek, so the Greek language is ek pisteos, out of faith. It springs from faith. Faith is the origin of this righteousness, not your works. So we're getting a strong contrast that whatever this faith thing means, it doesn't mean my effort or contribution. And there's a sharp distinction. So God's law can tell you what to do. It can say, go that way. That's the right way. This is the wise way to go. This is the good way to go. This delights God's heart. This is the right thing to do. But in saying that, the living and active word, that word can't get you there. It's like the user manual of a car. Very good to operate according to the user manual. In fact, if you don't, it'll start to break down on you. But the user manual can't actually make it go. That's a thing called gasoline. And Paul says, gasoline, you can't pour gasoline out of a user manual. They're two distinctly different things. Gasoline is the righteousness by faith or the word that we'll finally use now, the gospel. The good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And at the center of that good news is a double gift. It's a payment of your debt, of all the law that you broke, that you need to owe up to God for. And it's a giving of all the righteousness that you didn't have. It's a double gift. And it is a gift. It's not a gift with strings. It's a free gift of God's grace. So number three, the, this truth is a paradigm for the way, and this is what I think is really helpful about what Paul Zoll does in his book, Grace in Practice, in the opening chapter, is he talks about the big L law and the little L law. 
And he says the Big L law has this paradigm that uh, Paul reads is that it does something, it kills. But all around us, you can see little echoes of that reality in the way you and I operate, in the little L laws of life. Anything that's an ought or a should carries that same sort of paradigm. It can tell you what to do, but it can't make you do it. Parenting, right? Um, politics. We can legislate all the laws that we can't, but it's not going to change people's hearts. It might sort of drive deep down into people a subservient behavioral change, but that doesn't change people. Sometimes in my parenting, yes, I'm, I'm totally for law for behavior modification, but this is reminding me that I'm under no illusion that any of that work actually changes their heart. It's a work of God. And that heavy doses of that oughtness is actually doing what Paul calls exasperating my children, which I do all the time because I'm such an ought-driven parent. Right? And I, I trick myself into thinking they can actually do it. And I have these conversations with my kids. I know that this can't change you, but do it. Right? I just uh, The theological paradigm, I, I know. I know because I've seen it. Enough evidence. Enough of me telling you and you not. Like, I've got that. Right? So it works in... Christian growth, do all these things and you'll grow, right? What you're realizing is that apart from the righteousness given by faith and grace through Jesus Christ, I won't grow because that's not what it does. It tells me what's right. It tells me what to do, but it can't get me there. Christian growth, relationships, workplace and managing people in a workplace. So the final point is that the law is driving somewhere. And there is therefore a kind of graciousness in it. Even though it does only one work, it's driving you to grace because it's pinning the flesh to the ground and saying, you need to cry uncle. And when you do, there's another word coming, but it's not coming until you cry uncle, you know, because you can't recognize a gift for what it is until you've given up trying to grab stuff on your own. And so nothing short of death will do that to you. And this is where we turn to the rest of 2 Corinthians 3, and this is where we'll end. Because this is the, quote, key to Christian growth. This is the key to life in our households, in our workplaces, in our church. Here it is. Starting at, uh, let's start at about 2 Corinthians 3, verses, we'll just go straight to 17 to 18. Now the Lord is spirit. So he's talking about the second category. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, so in a way he's using a metaphor of, of Moses and the law. He's saying with unveiled face, what he's saying is apart from the law. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you hear all the... I hate to use this word. I'll use it. I was going to say passivity, but I'll say receptivity. Do you hear all the receptivity in this? That we are receiving this? We're beholding, and as we behold with unveiled face the beauty of God, as we behold... We are being transformed, passive. God's doing it to us as we behold this. 
this good news. So if you want to see discipleship happen in our church, if you want to see growth, you recognize that the only word that does that is to point people Christian, preach the gospel to them and point them to Christ crucified so that there's a moment of beholding. That's what we look for kind of in every sermon or in every worship service is that moment where we finally stop analyzing and we're just looking at Jesus' beauty. Because we all know that it's from that germination that springs the tree of life. Blessed is the man who is planted by streams of water, Jesus. And then he said, I'm the living water. I'm quoting Psalm 1. It yields its fruit in season. And Why does Jesus use all these botanical metaphors to describe life? Because plants, all they can do is sit there and receive the elements. And God says, I'm more than willing to pour my son on you. I'm more than willing to till the soil for you. And I'm more than willing to pull other plants in the process, and this is where I'm kind of mixing metaphors, to sow seeds so that those plants can grow. So if we want to see our church flourish, we do help people understand the reality of these two things. Thoughts are maybe two questions and then I've got to run. God is so good. Even faith and grace, these are things that mystically exist outside of God himself. They are, they are received and found within the activity, the triune activity Amen. of God. So it's just, it's I love that. I love that. I'm just hearing God's activity in all of this to fulfill this and to make a people for himself. And so thank you. Yeah. The Word of God is living and active and does that work. So I'll leave you with this final great sort of distinction that encapsulates what we just talked about. The law demands everything of us but gives us nothing. The gospel demands nothing of us but gives us everything. The more we can understand that side of the circle and embrace it, the freedom that comes. There's freedom there, but it's so hard because you and I are fleshly creatures. And we will be till the day we die. But this is the truth that God is declaring. Believe it. (laughs) Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.